The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We appreciate it, brother. Thank you, thank you. We're going to honor the Lord through this journey. We appreciate your prayers, appreciate the way you've ministered to our family. Uh, it's been quite a journey already in just a few short weeks, as you can imagine. Uh, my mom has been in the hospital for 20 days. She got out, came home, and then on uh, Friday it was, I get a text. My dad's passing out the back porch. I've called 911. He had a diabetic glow. The paramedics showed up. They look at my mom in a wheelchair with oxygen, me looking like this. <laughs> my dad over there, they didn't know who to go treat at that time. I mean, they were just thor- thoroughly confused. So, you know, we have uh, laughed, we've cried, and we're grateful for our good God. And uh, we're going to honor him in this journey together. Wherever it takes us, whatever it leads us to, uh, whatever steps we're going to take, my prayer is that Christ will be modeled not only in my life and my family's life, but it would be an example to you of what Jesus is like. And so that's our prayer. That's our prayer. Our prayer is that as we journey this journey together, that he'll be lifted up. I'll be back in the pulpit in a few weeks. It's kind of hard getting adjusted to uh, reading, taking your glasses off to read and see. So... Our young guys are going to be in the pulpit for the next few weeks, but uh, Lord willing, I'll be back uh, in a few weeks, be here to support them every week, and just uh, pray that God sees us through as we journey together. Amen? Amen. This morning we have the privilege of uh, Chase Bowers, our global outreach pastor, to be here. And if I make it down these steps, we're going to let him come up and preach. There we go. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Well, it is good to have the bald guy back with us, isn't it? Amen. Amen. I told him this morning, I said, man, you got on blue and khaki, I got on blue and khaki. If I shaved my head, they'd think I was you. He said, no, 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 unless your arms get a lot bigger, they're not going to think you're me, buddy. <laughs> Listen, we're, uh, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning, continuing this series on what it looks like to be the people of God, what it looks like to behave in the household of God, skipping over widows. Tim Cartwright will come back to that in two weeks on Mother's Day, but we are at the end of chapter 5 this week, and then we'll move into chapter 6 next week. This week we're going to talk about good shepherds and good servants. Good shepherds and good servants. In a world where godly leadership is hard to find, people demand their rights and demand their ways all of the time. Good shepherds and good servants give a great testimony of the good shepherd who came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So the people of God in the highest positions and in the hardest positions can be a light to the world in how we live. Let's read the Word of God together. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, 
but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that cannot, even those that are, cannot remain hidden. Let all who are under a yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that You give us, and specifically this book, 1 Timothy, that helps us to see what it looks like to live as the people of God and the household of God. Father, I thank You for godly men, the group of elders who lead our church, and how they lead us well. God, I pray that we would aspire to be that sort of person in Christ. And Lord, as we read in Your Word about good shepherds and good servants, Lord, we pray that You would help us to learn of You, to trust in You, and to follow You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the story goes that Raphael, famous Italian painter, was painting his frescoes in the Vatican when a couple of cardinals came by and they stopped him and said, you've painted the Apostle Paul's face a little too red. He looked at the cardinals and said, oh, his face isn't too red. He blushes because he's heard whose hands the church has fallen into. See, never mess with a painter. They've got sharp brushes and sharp tongues. There are a lot of churches... A lot of churches that really struggle in leadership. We're a church that's been blessed with godly leaders. We've got a godly group of elders. They're men chosen for ministry according to clear biblical requirements. After a sufficient season of testing in the church, elders are nearly always spoken of in plurality because God intends for more than one man to lead the church and rule over the church as a safeguard both for the church and for the man. We see this when Paul speaks of a council of multiple elders ruling in a local church. They love one another, they love the body, and they shepherd the flock of God. And so our instruction from Paul is to respect faithful elders. Respect faithful elders. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. Some folks take that especially those who preach and teach, and they kind of say, well, it's two separate groups. And it's not all elders who rule well, they lead well, are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That word honor is a Greek word, time. Time, it's spelt just like our word time. And it's for those who have been tested. They've been there over time. And we give them double honor. It actually has a double meaning. The first is that you give them respect. And the second meaning is that you pay them well. The first, first point is that we respect faithful elders. You respect faithful elders. You give them double honor. How do you do that? You honor them well. You honor them well. When I was preparing this text, I thought, wow, who, who could I talk about that's been a faithful elder? Boy, that's a, that's a tough one. Nobody comes to mind. Anybody come to your mind? I just thought, here, here sits Gary DeSalvo, our lead pastor, one of our elders, who served 
for 31 and a half years. It'll be 32 years in August. He's served this church faithfully. He's faithfully taught the Word. He's faithfully modeled Jesus. He's been faithful to this church. He's been faithful to his wife. He's been faithful to his family. He's been faithful as a friend. He's been faithful to his football team. He has served well. He's served well. Well, what do you do to a guy like that? You give him honor. You give him honor because he's been a good shepherd who's part of a great group of shepherds. A great group of shepherds. There may be more in here, but I just think right in front of my eyes as I just kind of look going across this way, I see Gary DeSalvo, I see Stuart Coles, I see Mike O'Neill, I see Danny Cunningham, I see Jonathan Chai, all guys who are part of our elder board. And when I look at them, I think these are men I want to be like. These are men I want to be like. When I think about Stuart and Mike, I think about men of insight. When our staff and elders meet together and one of these guys begins to ask a question or speak, for me, it's like E.F. Hutton's talking. I want to listen. I want to listen. Danny Cunningham, he and Gary both mentor me um, and on really all of our staff. Here's a, a man of integrity. He's honest to a fault. Last week I asked him if my glasses made me look funny. He said, it's not the glasses, brother. He, he loves me. Jonathan Chai, I, I don't know anybody who takes pray without ceasing as serious as Jonathan Chai. He's a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. And, and Gary DeSalvo, he leads us well. He teaches us well. He loves us well. Um, the, the day after, no, the, yeah, the day we found out, I think, that he had cancer, or maybe the day after, we were taking some food over to his house, and I was just giving him a hug, and he stopped me. Danny and I were about to go to Ukraine. He goes, hey, man, let's pray for your trip before we go. Like he didn't have anything else on his mind that day. And I think about this group of men that lead us, and they're worthy. They're worthy of honor. See, when we hear about elders who rule well, the Scripture says it's a noble aspiration if one desires to be an elder. Not everybody God will call to fill that office. We leave that up to God. But these are the sort of men we want to look at and emulate. They're the sort of men we want to aspire to be. Because they're good shepherds. Well, you honor them well, you honor them well, and then you pay them well. You pay them well. When it's speaking about elders, elders, church leaders, you pay them well. Deuteronomy 24.5, you don't muzzle the ox when he treads out the grain when the Scripture speaks of pastors and elders, leaders, it calls us an ox. I guess there's one animal in the Scripture it could have called us that might have been worse. But we'll take ox. The picture is, you've got this beast of burden, and he's plowing a field. He's treading out the grain, and there's some grain there. Don't muzzle him. Let him eat. Let him eat. Take care of him. And that's the idea. You take care of him. Or, Paul quotes Jesus, and he says, the way... The, The worker is worth his wages. I'll get that out. The worker is worth his wages. You take care of him. I want to tell you, I praise God. I praise God for being part of a body where you guys take care of us really well. I praise God for that. Before I was on staff here, as part of this body, I traveled and preached across the southern United States and sometimes into other nations. And I went from church to church to church to church to church. And occasionally I saw a church with great, strong leadership. But I want to tell you, many times I saw guys who were struggling to feed their families. I saw pastors, leaders who were angry at the church, churches that were angry at the pastors. 
Now, of course, if anybody's listening online at a church I preached at, I'm not talking about their church, right? But I've got to tell you, oftentimes I'd go in and pastors were just broken and struggling and sometimes they weren't really willing to lead and oftentimes the church was frustrated, but really they were just getting what they were paying for. The Scripture says, honor them well and take care of them well. And you guys do that and we praise God for it. And I can tell you, my wife will tell you, I'd be gone 110 to 140 days a year. But when I would come home and be in this church, every church has got issues. Every elder on this board will tell you they're sinners. We as pastors, we sin. We all sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And nobody here is perfect. But they're seeking to follow Jesus. I'd look at Laura and I'd come home for a Sunday. And I'd just say, man, it's good to be back in this place. It's good to be back in this place because I knew we had leaders we could trust who were sound and godly men. And I praise God for that. Respect faithful elders. You honor them well and you pay them well. You respect elders and then you protect elders against frivolous accusations. Listen, if you're a church leader, you live in a glass house, there will be people who don't like things you say, people who don't like things you do. You hear something about elders, there will be a a tendency, there's a sinful thing that will well up in us and we'll want to talk. We live in a culture where we talk about people, not to people. Do not listen to a charge against an elder. The Scripture's clear, unless it's on the basis of two or three witnesses. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You don't listen to frivolous accusations. Listen, somebody says to me, Somebody says to me, Gary DeSalvo is actually a closet Alabama fan. He went to their spring game and loved it. I'm not listening to that. You don't have any witnesses for that. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Somebody tells me Jonathan Child went two hours the other day without praying. That's false. It doesn't happen. I'm not listening to that. You don't have a witness for that. Somebody says Gene Martin is a harsh guy. Well, if you know Gene Martin, you know that's false. You got a witness for that? No that's just false. I'm not listening to it. That's how you respond to that. Somebody says, Mike O'Neill short and fat. No. You can't get a witness for that. It's a false accusation. See, the reason that you don't accept the charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses is because of the way they've lived. They've walked with Jesus over time. They have been tested. You know that's not believable. See, there's a way... You think someone's in sin, there's a way to go about it. If you feel you have an issue with somebody, the Scripture's clear both for elders and for the church, you go to them privately. You go to them privately. This is not somebody did something you don't like. Gary said something I don't like the other day. He's in sin against me. No, he probably just faithfully taught the Word and you got a faithful wound. But if you feel somebody's sinned against you, you go to them privately. You go to them privately. And that's what you do if you have an issue with an elder. I know these men. They're godly men. you got a concern. You go and talk to them. They'd love to talk to you. But you don't bring a charge against them. You don't bring it up in public. You don't bring it out except on the basis of two or three witnesses. You just don't do it. You just don't do it. One author says this, The trouble with being a leader today is that you can't be sure whether people are following you or chasing you. That's just a reality. You can't be sure. 
Listen, there's a culture. There's a culture of suspicion in the world we live in today. Mark Driscoll says it like this, when there's distrust among people in the church, especially about leaders, division is certain. And the larger a church gets, the more vital trust is. Without trust, distrust, mistrust, suspicion, gossip, and harsh systems of accountability that avoid relationship become weeds. They grow up and they choke the life and joy out of a church. The ligaments that hold together the various parts of the church body are relationships. And without trust, there can be no relationship. Or even biblical church. Unfortunately, our pop culture today specializes in practicing hermeneutics of suspicion that cause distrust. Listen, a hermeneutic of suspicion has no biblical ground. It is not God's desire that you run around in your local church being some sort of hunter of fault and leaders. The world has one Nancy Grace and that's enough. Amen? We just don't need that. You respect faithful elders and you don't take a charge against them frivolously. That's dangerous. It causes division. And over and over and over in Paul's letters, and this one included, we'd read of his desire for unity because that's how the world will know that we're his disciples when we love one another. When we love one another. We respect our elders. We protect our elders. Then what if a guy is in blatant sin? What if a guy is in blatant sin? What do you do? What do you do? And I've hit the wrong button here. If a guy's in blatant sin then you rebuke him. You rebuke him. You respect faithful elders. You protect faithful elders. But those who persist in sin, you rebuke in the presence of all. There we go. That's my fault, guys. Sorry about that. Those who persist in sin, you rebuke in the presence of all. Listen, it's in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. You skip down verse... Verse 24, the sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. If a guy's in persistent sin, you rebuke him in the presence of all so that, so that the others may fear. So that the others may fear. There are a couple of warnings here. What if a guy's really persistent in sin? Let's just say, for example, following Jesus equated loving LSU football. Just for example. Just for example, and say, say Danny goes over to Gary's house one day and, um, and he just kind of walks in because they're friends. He doesn't knock. He just goes in the door and he sees Gary's watching Alabama and they score a touchdown. He goes, roll tide. Danny goes, man, what are you, what are you doing? No, not, nothing, nothing. I was, just, well, I was just joking. You know, I don't want them to win. But he just kind of persists. All of a sudden there's a Nick Saban mural a red shirt on in his office. <laughs> Danny brings Mike and Stuart. Gary, man, what are you doing? We love you. You don't, I mean, no, we don't roll tight here. You know that. <laughs> well, then all of a sudden, on the back of his Explorer, there's a big white A, and he comes into church. It's just blatant. He's got on a houndstooth fedora. <laughs> rebuke him in the presence of all. You'd, you'd say that. You ever do that, we need to rebuke you, right? Amen. 
See if an elder is persisting in sin. You rebuke him in the presence of all so that the rest may fear. There are kind of two warnings here. The first is don't sin. Don't sin. You say, we're all going to sin. Right, but John tells us, I'm writing these things. First John wrote his book, so that you may not sin. If you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But fight against it. Why? Because sin takes you further than you want to go, it costs you more than you want to pay, and it keeps you longer than you want to stay. I'll say it again. I remember hearing that when I was 17 years old, and it just stuck in my head. It takes you further than you want to go, it costs you more than you want to pay, and it keeps you longer than you want to stay. And I've seen that play out tragically in my own life and in the lives of others. You get in a pattern of sin. I was talking to a friend several years ago who had gotten into a pattern of sin. And I began to talk to him about it. And he said, this is not a big deal. I've got it under control. I'm going to be okay. And I said, man, this is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt those around you. And he just kept on and kept on and kept on. And it, and it took him further than he wanted to go. And it cost him more than he wanted to pay. And it kept him longer than he wanted to stay. And now he's left the ministry and he's left the faith. But see, when we entertain sin, we think we've got it under control. But it's got... It's, us under control and our minds our minds shift they change we're given over to our evil thoughts when we persist in sin and it's dangerous it's dangerous so the two warnings are first stand in fear don't sin it's dangerous and I think the second way that we're to stand in fear is don't follow this guy Don't follow this guy. Charles Spurgeon said this, the only leader worth following is the leader who's following Christ. The only leader worth following is the leader who's following Christ. So somebody names the name of Jesus, but they're walking in persistent sin. Don't follow them. That's dangerous. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. I praise God. I look at our elders and I look at other men that I know in this church that are older than me and I say, yeah, I can follow that guy. I know the life he's living. I know the life he's living. I can can run after that guy. I'm with him. I'll follow Jesus with him. I'll follow him as he follows Christ. I look out and see John Jez, a guy in our church who's a godly man, served Jesus well. He's been on the mission field, got two kids on the mission field. Yeah, there's a guy I'll follow. There's a guy I'll follow. See, but if a guy's persisting in sin, rebuke him in the presence of all so that they'll fear. Because it'll take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and it'll keep you longer than you want to stay. So we respect faithful elders. We protect our elders against frivolous accusations. We rebuke. We rebuke our elders who persist in sin. And then we handle all these things. We handle all these things with wisdom and integrity. See, verse 21, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, this is solemn. Paul says, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do it wisely. Don't just do this lightly. And do nothing from partiality. When a man is to become an elder, it's because he's lived it out over time. He's, he's qualified. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands so that you may 
share in the sins of others. What's Paul saying to Timothy? He's saying the good old boy network does not work when you're picking elders. Well, this is a friend of mine. He's a good guy. I mean, he's got his issues. You can't do that. When we're talking about those who are going to lead God's people, you've got to do it carefully. You've got to do it with integrity. Chuck Swindoll says, Elder is perhaps the greatest title a man can have. An elder is a man of maturity, a man of experience, a man who's been tested and proven in every area of his life to have the qualities needed to lead the church under the authority of Jesus Christ. Elders of men of honor and trust who model obedience, grace, love, spiritual maturity so that everybody in the church knows what an adult Christian looks like. We ought to be able to look at those leading us and know, oh, that's what it looks like to be grown, to be mature in the faith. That's what it looks like. To be somebody who doesn't need milk but can eat solid food and then share it with others. That's what it looks like. So we handle these things carefully, carefully, carefully. Why? Turn to John chapter 10. Because good shepherds, good shepherds are a model of the good shepherd. Good shepherds are a model of the good shepherd. See, in John chapter 10, in verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. See, ideally, ideally, elders as good shepherds are models of the good shepherd so that when the world looks, they see an authentic model of Jesus Christ. They see an authentic model of Jesus Christ. Vance Habner says it like this, We need men of the cross with a message of the cross bearing the marks of the cross. Because it models, it models the good shepherd. It models the good shepherd. We've talked about good shepherds. We're going to talk about good servants. But then there's this strange little verse right toward the end of 1 Timothy 5. Verse 22, kind of as a, as a precursor to it, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. And then Paul says to Timothy, keep yourself pure, which is, you'd expect to hear something like that, but then what he follows it up with, keep yourself pure, no longer drinking only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I've got to tell you, I feel a little bad and my stomach hurts when I read that. You understand? Maybe you don't understand. Why would he say this? Why would he say this? Use a little wine. Use a little wine. See, we know elders can't be men of too much wine, but maybe Timothy is moving toward asceticism. There are two dangerous extremes when it comes to alcohol that happen in the church. And one is asceticism. You hope in that you don't drink, smoke, or cuss. Those are all fine things not to do. But when you hope in what you do, it's dangerous. You become a teetotaler and you say, any alcohol... 
really is awful. It's just bad, even for medicinal purposes. And then you take verses like this and you go, well, really, he meant non-alcoholic wine because, you know, it's just grape juice, which really wouldn't have helped your stomach. They didn't drink water back then, but it seems like the woman at the well did, so that's a little bit confusing. Well, what, what, that's dangerous. We don't hope and do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's a code that will stand against you and it brings death. It's dangerous. But then there's another extreme. And that's drunkenness. That's drunkenness. And let's not pretend that in a room full of people, some of you here don't struggle with drunkenness and consistent drunkenness. Now, we probably wouldn't say this at TBC, but back where I grew up in southeast Texas, if you were consistently in drunkenness, they'd call you a drunk. And some of you, that's where you are, and you hide it or you think you hide it. And you're like that friend of mine, this isn't affecting me, this isn't bothering me, I'm a, I'm a functioning alcoholic, I'm doing fine. And listen, it's hurting you, it's hurting your family, it's hurting those around you. And it will take you further than you want to go and it will cost you more than you want to pay and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. And you need to stop. You need to get help. You need to come talk to one of our staff members. Talk to one of our elders. We've got CR on Tuesday nights. If you're struggling with addiction, you need help. You need help. But really, what, what's Paul saying here? What's Paul saying here? I think what he's saying is take care of yourself. Just take, take care of yourself. Timothy's having issues... Don't, don't worry. You, you make sure that you are taken care of. You make sure that you are taken care of. Listen, I'm telling you, I've been, I've been in churches of a certain denomination I used to preach in a lot where somebody like Gary has surgery. It's a day surgery. And those deacons, he's going to need to be back in that office that next day. And if he's not, why not? I mean, we need to get that pastor to work. We don't want him being lazy. That's just it's silly. Maybe that's what Timothy was experiencing. Maybe there were folks that were mocking his illness. I don't know. But Paul says, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Use a little wine for your stomach. Use a little wine for your stomach. There was a day and age, a physician told me this week, when at Scott and White Hospital, if you had a GI problem, they'd prescribe a little bit of wine to you. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like a lot better option than what they do to you today when you've got a GI problem. <laughs> it, it just does. Okay. So Paul says, take care of yourself, Timothy. Use a little wine. Use a little wine. Listen, we've talked about good shepherds. Let's talk about good servants. We're going from the highest office to maybe the hardest office. Let all who are under yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now, is Paul condoning slavery here? No. Anybody miss that? No. He's just speaking to the issue of the day. That's where people live. There were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire, and many of them were not a race-based slavery like we had in the United States. Some people would sell themselves into slavery. But Paul says, if you find yourself here, if you find yourself here, honor your master. Honor your master. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
Well, how does not honoring your master revile the name of God and revile the teaching? It's because the gospel compels us to look different than the world. We're a counterculture. Our lives are different. Now, nobody in this place today, how does this apply to us today? Nobody in this place is a slave. Nobody in this place is a slave. But many of us have problems with submission to authority. And here's here's the reality. We're not talking about somebody's abusing you, sexual harassment's happening. You don't know. That's not what we're talking about. But what we're talking about is just this reality is that if you're like me, most problems with submission to authority are rooted in problems with submission to God. We just don't like to submit. We've got rebel hearts just like our father and mother, Adam and Eve, had. We've got rebel hearts. We don't like to submit. And most problems with submission to authority are rooted in problems with submission to God. So you honor those in authority over you so that the name of God and the teaching are not reviled. But what if they're a believer? What if they're a believer? You show honor especially if they're a brother. Those, verse 2 of chapter 6, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, this is hard for us to think about, but we're talking about Roman Empire, first century, not a big church where 3,000 people meet every Sunday, but little house churches. Now, it's very, very possible. You could have been a slave in the Roman Empire and been an elder in a church. But you could have been a slave in the Roman Empire and your master is part of the same body as you are. That could lead to some interesting relationships, to say the least. What do you do? Well, he, he's over me, but he's a believer. So really, I mean, shouldn't my job be easier than everybody else's? Can't you give me a break? I mean, come on, we're brothers. He says, especially if they're brothers, don't take advantage of them. Don't take advantage because... They're believers and they're beloved. So don't take advantage of them. That Greek word there for serve them is always used for serving those under you. I don't, I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe that's because those who want to be great in the kingdom would become servants of all. So maybe it's that person in the workplace who's over you today. And you say, man, they're, I mean, we're both believers. Can't... Can't you put this load on them? No. No. We don't ask things like that because just like Stephen told us weeks ago, the gospel does not triumph by grabs for power. And listen, the gospel doesn't triumph by demanding our rights either. The household of God, the people of God, looks different than the world. One author tells a story of a cartoon he saw of shackled Roman prisoners standing on a dock looking for a Roman galley that's coming into port. And they see it and one says to the other, that's a great ship, I wonder what makes it go. He says, the sketch reminded me of the words of the Apostle Paul, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. Literally, the Greek word there is under rowers those slaves that are under the ship of the evil oppressor that make it go wherever it's in going, wherever it's going. 
He says, I'm a galley slave with the rest of God's people, pulling an oar with everybody else. See, if the Apostle Paul can say that, can't we be people who are ready to serve? Can't we be people who are ready to serve? Why be good servants in a world where people grab for power, where we're told to demand our rights? See, because just like good shepherds model the good shepherd, good servants model the good servant. He existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he took on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death. Because when we read things like this, you think, man, that's hard. That's just hard to do. If you want to know what following Jesus looks like, it looks like bleeding on behalf of others, laying down your life on behalf of others. And that's an amazing apologetic. You go into a workplace, it's hard, and you love and serve well, you'll have to give a defense for the hope that's in you. How do you do that? Why do you do that? See, Peter tells us, be ready to give a defense. The assumption he makes is that our lives will look so different, we'll have to explain why we live that way whether it be good shepherds or good servants, we live as God's people so that our lives will testify that we're the light of the world. So I don't don't know if you're here today and maybe you don't know the good shepherd, Jesus, who laid down his life for all who would hope in him. Maybe you don't know the good servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. I want to encourage you in a in a world that we've seen in the last couple of weeks that is utterly broken. The need for a Savior and King ought to be abundantly clear. Have you put your hope in Him? Have you trusted Him as a good shepherd, the good servant? This is a great place of God's people, led by great people, a great community to be in, but that begins with following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the men that I look out on this morning that lead me. And God, I thank you for them and for their faithful wives and for how well they serve and the others who are not in this service who do that. I thank you, God, that we've got a great group of elders. And Father, I pray that we would aspire to be such people who model Jesus well. God, I pray that our hope would not ever be in what we do, but that we would be afraid of the destruction that sin brings. And that we'd pursue you with all that we are, God. I pray wherever we find ourselves, in whatever circumstance, that we would be servants and submissive ultimately because we want to submit our lives to you and serve you. And God, for those in this place that don't know you as the good shepherd, as a servant who laid down his life as a ransom for many, who's risen from the dead, ruling and reigning. God, would you draw them to you that they might know you as Savior and King, as Lord and as treasure, that they might put their hope in you. God, as we go our way this week, be glorified by the body of Christ in Temple, Texas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.